from beautiful downtown Sacramento, it's time for Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! Beach Blanket Hey everybody, this is Spaz, and welcome to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo! I appreciate you coming and spending some time with me and my special guest. That's right, I'm going to be chatting with Mr. Joe Nolte. He is the main singer-songwriter in a band called The Last, and they are celebrating the 40th anniversary of their debut album, an album that literally changed the way I listen to music. The album is called LA Explosion, and for the next hour or so, you will be able to hear the highlights of my conversation with Joe. So sit back, relax, and let's hang out in the blanket fort together. I first laid eyes on the last debut album, L.A. Explosion, on August 15, 1979, while shopping at Licorice Pizza. It was new release day, so I always flipped through the miscellaneous sections to find new releases by bands I already knew of and discover albums by bands I had yet to hear. Now, L.A. Explosion's album cover intrigued me. I, I, I couldn't tell if it was punk, power pop, or garage rock. The sleeve made me think that they may have been influenced by early Rolling Stones, but again, I just couldn't tell what it was all about. And, and as I stated earlier, I was intrigued. I mean, the, the album was released by an indie label by the name of Bomp Records, and I even dug the label's logo. But that was my issue. It was not an indie label. I was 15, and even though I had been buying punk, new wave, and power pop albums up to that point, they were all on major labels. Virgin and Polydor seemed to be releasing a plethora of great albums at that time, and of course I was buying releases on CBS, MCA, Capitol, and Warner Brothers. However, I was young and thought that independent meant not good enough to be on a major label. In some cases, that was true. But, as I soon learned, the indie scene was pretty amazing. Now, my money went to a different album that day, probably The Jam or Bram Tchaikovsky or Yachts, but I kept thinking about that album by the last. I even slightly regretted my final purchase, wondering if I should go back to the store and exchange it. By the time I got home, I told myself the next album I was going to purchase was L.A. Explosion by The Last. But being too young to work, I had to wait until I built up enough allowance to buy the album, which took two weeks. Now, I remember walking to the store, hoping that the album was still in the bin. I remember the anticipation of walking over to Miscellaneous L and fearing the worst. But thankfully, the album was there, and I anxiously purchased it and rushed out of the store with the album safely under my arm. I briskly walked that mile home and immediately put my headphones on, even before I took the album out of the bag. I don't even think I peed before heading off into my happy little musical universe. Well, less than a minute later, I was laying the needle on the album, praying that my two weeks of pining for this slab of wax was worth it. 
And in short, LA Explosion changed my life. This amazing collection of songs opened up my musical universe. At that moment, I realized that the world of independent labels was an unexplored dimension of sound that I could spend the rest of my life exploring. Since the band was based in Hermosa Beach, it, it showed me that a collective of like-minded kids less than 30 miles away could create something as magical as the bands that came from the UK, Australia, and every other country and continent on the planet. LA Explosion was like opening a door and discovering a universe that I had only hoped existed. Now, LA Explosion wasn't punk, power pop, or garage rock. It was all of that and more. It was a nod to the 60s, a high five to the 70s, and a confident claim on the timelessness of rock and roll. The band had a punk attitude, but the album was filled with glorious pop melodies. 40 years ago, the names Joe Nolte, Michael Nolte, David Nolte, Vetus Monterey, and Jack Reynolds were permanently tattooed in my brain. LA Explosion was a game changer for me, and I am eternally grateful to the members of The Last for showing me the light. Now, in the midst of rehearsals for their August 18th anniversary show, I was able to chat with main singer-songwriter Joe Nolte about his life leading up to and including the release of L.A. Explosion and their short time on Bomp Records. The band has continued to release great albums since then, but I chose to focus on this period of the band's career. I hope you enjoy the highlights of that conversation. Welcome to The Blanket Fort, Joe Nolte. Yeah! Before we discuss the album, L.A. Explosion, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary, let's go back, way back to the beginning. Now, do you remember the moment you first connected with music and when you decided that you wanted to be a musician? I know when I decided when I knew I had to be a musician. Um, but the, the, as far as connecting with music, um, my dad was, was a hi-fi buff. But he took his time about getting into stereo. So we had like a mono hi-fi for the 60s. He was totally into classical. And uh, uh, my mom, as far as records, would like the occasional uh, sort of show tunes. I, I remember marching around to uh, The King and I as a child. I remember my dad playing uh, Debussy on um, the grand piano we had. Um, you know, especially like the engulfed cathedral. He told me the story about how there was this ghostly church that rose up, you know, once every hundred years from the depths of the ocean, which I thought was just, you know, really cool. And, it, and, and so I had that growing up, but more, at least as interestingly, mom listened to Top 40 in the car. So I was listening to Top 40. My first memories of Top 40 music are from like the very early, the uh, Kennedy era, which is uh, like the great unsung pop era of all time. It's like, you know, everything, everything was happening there, but that's far to field away from what concerns us. But there was that. What I wanted to be, I wanted to be Walt Disney when I grew up. Always. Actually, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, I was mad because um, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh was on the Disney on the Disney show at the same time. So I was kind of like, ah. But um, obviously, one 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 doesn't grow up in that era and 
stay immune from the Beatles' charm for too long. And the tragedy, though, is I was um, one of my tragedies is I was the oldest kid, didn't really have any uh, close friends among older kids, so I was like. You know, I didn't really have access to a lot of stuff. I wasn't able to see the Beatle movies until around the spring of 67, they did a reissued double play of uh, Help and Hard Day's Night. And I was, yeah, I was 10. And I was able to finally go to that. And it was great because we go to the theater and the lights go down and the, um, I think it was, uh, they showed help first, and as, as help starts, all the girls started screaming. It was the closest I got to Beatlemania. It was so cool. And then, of course, they stopped the film, and there will be no continuation of the movie until you learn to behave yourselves. You just know there was some old guy with, a, you know, uh, some kind of uh, pocket pen and bald head and glasses up, you know, <laughs> making that announcement, you know. So it's, it's you know, that help was groovy, of course, and, and and then Hard Day's Night came on. I can tell you the exact second that uh, Walt Disney went out the window. It's impossible to say enough about Hard Day's Night, which is just arguably the ultimate pop moment ever. The songs are amazing and stuff, but you know, and then it's mostly Lennon, and the Lennon songs are great, stupendous, and wonderful. But for some reason, it was watching. The And I Love Her segment, where Paul's kind of singing and being all cool, and they're doing the weird thing with the lights where they're breaking all the rules about having, you know, lights shine into the lens and stuff. And um, I just saw, like, the two uh, young ladies in the control room who were just, like, forgetting to do whatever they were supposed to be doing and just watching Paul mesmerized. And I just looked at that brief moment of adoration uh, combined with this incredible song, and at that instance, I said, I want to do that. And that was it. I, I've, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> this kind of feeling would always descend on somebody else. I know it's got me too. I don't know what to do. How can I explain the way I feel today? Well, when you initially formed your first band, were you focusing on cover versions, or was it always your intention to play originals? It was always my intention to play originals. I had to figure out how to write them. Uh, well, like right away, like as of, you know, at 67, I'm starting to make up songs. Um, I came up with one I thought was cool. Um, I'd, I'd stolen Anna, the Arthur Alexander cover that the Beatles did on Early Beatles, right? And, um, and I, you know, just changed the words around into a song called Arabia. So I went like, Arabia, Arabia, right? That was, <laughs> I, I made that up while sitting in right field in Little League. <laughs> so, you know, you, but I mean, you have to, you have to copy. Yeah, well, you know, it's, you got to do what you got to do. But um, first band was somebody else's band. I kind of formed it. I didn't have an amplifier, so they had to can me. And um, a justifiable, but I swore, you know, I had, for now on, I start my own bands. I'm never getting fired again. <laughs> and I stuck to that, but that was, that was the initial thing. That was my only 60s band. 
because I just, it was 69 when I got my first electric guitar. My first stint of the band, and of course, what do you do if you're like 13? You know, you do covers. In, in uh, 68, 69, you played Sunshine of Your Love. You just did. Although, you know, Wipeout was still big, even at the end of the 60s. It got a resurgence with uh, the Batman theme. In the mid-70s, you were in a prog band, but then you suddenly changed course and embraced a new direction, and you started embracing the punk rock aesthetic even before punk existed. What caused that change? That prog band was doing Push and Do Hard in 73. You know, I was already, by 73, I, I already had an inkling of what you know I wanted to do. I think it was around, it was like... 72, 73, I saw Riot on Sunset Strip on TV for the first time, and that was that was pretty life-changing. I thought, you know, L.A. in 66 is so much cooler than San Francisco in 67, you know. The prog thing, I call it a prog thing because it was, you know, well, my thing was to never have a song that stayed in the same key and preferably to never have a song that stayed in the same timing. Like, I'd want to go three-fourths to four-fourths and you know, sometimes, you know, seven eights. Um, the idea, uh, we were like the anti-dance band, which is great because we actually did a, a high school dance or two. They were not happy. <laughs> you know, I was irritated throughout the early 70s by what I saw as the complacency. You know, come on, guys, you we were cutting our teeth on really good music and now it's gotten crappy and and you like it. Why? You're buying the records. You're encouraging this. You know, it's like I'd seen, right? I mean, it's an old story. It's like all my favorite bands, you know, now sucked <laughs> for various reasons. You know, they just weren't, they weren't what they were, you know? And um, so I was, I mean, I was like itching for a change. And so this sort of anti-band was kind of my deal at the time. Um, and I certainly, there was a lot of kinks damage, a lot of toll damage, a lot of Zappa damage. So it's, you know, and a little bit of Beatle damage too. But, um, so there were a lot, there were a lot of mid sixties things already going on, but round about 75, you know, I started getting really into, I was revisiting Lenny Kay's Nuggets. And dreaming, you know, God, if only I could have been part of the punk rock scene, you know, wouldn't that have been great? And um, it was just happened to be kind of a happy timing um, because I'm like discovering songs I hadn't known and, you know, revisiting ones that I had. And I was just really researching and focusing on that era. And I was between bands. I had gotten out of high school like at the end of 75, I start reading about this scene in New York. And they were even calling it punk rock. You know, they had punk bands like uh, Blondie, Talking Heads. 70, 75, 76, they were all punk. Punk just meant the new, uh, you know, multidimensional new wave that was coming. And of course... As with rock and roll and as with new wave, all three, you know, punk, new wave and rock and roll all existed as names before the music and the music followed. A gasoline bar. 
74, 75, I'm like looking. Music needed a new direction. Disco had taken over. I mean, disco's ear candy in retrospect. It's fun, even. But, you know, it was the enemy just because it had replaced rock and roll. But really, rock and roll was its own enemy because it had sort of rolled over and played dead. I'm sorry. If all we can do is Steve Miller, Peter Frampton, and Fleetwood Mac, then rock and roll deserves it. But, I mean, the thing is... When you're old, like I am now, and stuff is going south, it's like, good, let it die, you know. But when you're young, when you're like 19 or 20, it's like, no, I've got to save it. And I was desperate. So it's like, yeah, I was, I was looking for something new. The something new came to me, and it was amazing. What happens is fairly quickly, it's like uh, the Modern Lovers album finally comes out, the uh, you know, the old demos um, at the beginning of 76. And that's all I had. So I thought, you know, my plan was to get a band together and figure out how to get to New York because I knew damn well that that this scene was going to be short-lived and it would never get out of New York. You couldn't play original music in L.A., so, you know, why not? When did the first lineup of The Last come together? I had a um, co-conspirator, a good friend of mine, Dave Harbison, who had been in my high school band, along with Vetus. Vetus had given up music and moved to Germany. Harbison had been um, taking classes in Santa Barbara, but had just returned uh, to L.A. as of, like, uh, March of 76. And so I called him. I said, Dave, I got a band idea. All we need is a drummer. And so I grabbed him. We went and we found somebody was advertising, you know, for musicians. Uh, so we went. They had a full band. And uh, so Dave and I both joined the band and threw everybody out except the drummer. My brother Mike had started writing lyrics, and I actually started setting a couple of them to music, including one which was called The Power, and for whatever reason, that became our name. So that was The Power, and that was the summer of 76, and that was the prototype of The Last, and we were already doing this stuff that would end up in The Last repertoire. That lineup, the drummer was Vic Pizarro, and we were able to get a weekend at a bar, it was great, but they didn't think we were quite ready, which, of course, we weren't. I never waited until I was ready for anything. Uh, but anyway, the, the, for whatever reason, the drummer stopped answering his door. <laughs> we took the hint, so, you know. So Dave goes away. I moved back to, to – I moved to, into my mom's house in Hermosa Beach because I had just discovered Backdoor Man magazine. It's like I thought, my God, there's actually recognition of this scene, and it's coming from the South Bay which I'd grown up in the South Bay. I mean, I now lived in L.A., but it was like, you know, I thought, oh, my God, in the South Bay, this is amazing. We could have a scene right here. So um, I moved down to the South Bay to see if I could meet those backdoor man people. Very long story short, I eventually did. At the time, the first thing I did was I moved in with my mom and soundproofed the garage. And then, sure enough, Dave Harbison returns. He had been playing in a, I don't know, he'd been playing in some band, but he found a drummer. So he, you know, we had a drummer again. Getting a drummer was difficult. That guy's name was Michael Clark, no relation to anybody, and I don't know what happened to him. But, um, but he stayed with us uh, long enough to make a demo and actually stay with us from, um, I guess, uh, October of 76 through May of 77. Basically, we had one practice with Mike Clark, and um, my brothers Mike and Dave were there. I gave Dave a tambourine, and then um, just for fun, I said, Mike, why don't you try singing something, you know? And he did, and I thought, oh, this could work. So I got Mike in the band, and Vetus was actually, we have recordings of that one practice, because Vetus was actually back in town, and he wanted to be a producer, 
he didn't want to make music, but he wanted to record it. So he had a four track tape deck and he said, yeah, I'll, I'll record you guys. It'll be great. He Vetus was involved and I brought Mike in. So me, Mike and David sat up half night because I said, man, we need a new name. <laughs> and so we were, we spent uh, like an hour, you know, just like, like pages and pages of terrible names. Um, and we're just shouting out names, this, that, the, this, the other. Mike says the last, you know, whatever. No, 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 we keep going. And then uh, a minute later, wait, what was that? Oh, the last? Hmm. Yeah. So that was it. have a very distinctive songwriting style and it's still prevalent in your music today who would you say were your greatest influences creatively i mean we could say the beatles but apart from this kind of feeling i think that your stuff leans towards a different direction than the beatles beatles totally beatles totally i i found out quickly that if you want if you try to write a beatles song you're going to fail miserably so i didn't do too much of that but this kind of feeling, I decided to write a Beatles song, and so I decided to write a song like the Everly Brothers. So that if you want to write a, write like somebody, don't try to write like them. Try to write like they were trying to write. If you want to do, if you want to be like the Stooges, try to be like Question Mark and the Mysterians. You know, go go just go big, go up a level. Um, but for for you know, we've talked about this kind of feeling anyway. But um, and that that's kind of a more obvious. But but the but the Beatles far and away have, have been an insanely huge influence, you know, just in terms of well they've got it's like they're especially in the earlier days. Um, you know, and the thing about the Beatles that people don't necessarily realize is their greatness is not that they were starting something brand new, you know. What the Beatles' brilliance was is that they were synthesizing everything that had just happened. They were taking all the music of the aforementioned Kennedy era and bringing it all together from Smokey Robinson's best stuff to Clancy Brothers to um, Giffle to regular 50s to Nat King Cole in Paul's case. Brill building, I mean, the list goes on. There's an amazing amount of pop music because what happened is at the end of 63, of course, Kennedy gets assassinated and nobody wants to remember anything. People are just like starving for forgetfulness because it's like it's too painful. Uh, the Beach Boys uh, and the Seasons survived that sort of thing, but the Beatles were like a godsend. Oh boy, this is new and they're not even American. You know, it's perfect. The Beatles saved the youth of America in the 60s. I had favorite bands, um, Beatles, up to Paul announces his quitting the group, um, at which point I went to Zappa. I discovered we're only in it for the money in the summer of 70, which is the third album in... It's the one that's a parody of the Sgt. Pepper album. I went from that to Tull. I was into a thing where I was starting to read Lord of the Rings every year, and I found Tull was like the perfect accompanying music. And shortly thereafter, I discovered uh, Fairport. I'd already heard uh, Pentangle Cruel Sister. I discovered a uh, Fairport Legion Leaf album and fell in love just with um, the sort of uh, British trad folk rock uh, 
movement of the late 60s, early 70s. And then um, I'd always known about the Kinks. I'd always liked, I had the Arthur album since it came out. But um, for some reason, in 73, some reason, oh yeah, I know, I went and saw them live. They played at the Palladium in um, the spring of 73. And uh, it was amazing. And they did a song I'd never heard before called Harry Rag, which is from the Something Else album. And I was fortunate enough to be able to find the album like in a day or two. And then I heard the rest of the album and I realized this is, this is better. <laughs> why, why don't I know all these songs, you know? And, and so then it was kinks, 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 nothing but kinks. Well, I'd avoided Bowie, actually. I kind of thought I was, you know, ah, that's just, you know, fake stuff you know i i i i i I, let's see oh yeah i know i was dumb um (laughs) i don't know what i was missing but suddenly the diamond dogs album came out and i realized oh my god what have i done i've wasted my whole life i realized that bowie was was actually brilliant and um 75 i said okay yeah and i had a lot so it was great i had all this music to catch up on (laughs) 75 vetus was getting ready to go to germany and he uh, played me. He had turned me on to Golden Earring before. Golden Earring had been um, had released all of their most amazing stuff way before Radar Love, you know. So it was like totally, totally unknown, you know, un, un, unknown in America, but just you know, fantastic. It went from that. My final favorite became The Modern Lovers, and and then that was it. Because then after that, I was I was a part of the music scene, and and I never had favorites again. Which is not uh, quite true. My final favorites would actually be the Sex Pistols. originally intending to put out your first single on your own? Oh, yeah, we did. We did. We put it out on our Backlash label. Um, there, I think there were 300 copies. We could not afford a stamper. <laughs> I handwrote all the titles. That's my handwriting. Yeah, it was an independent release, but it was also, you know, a good demo. It's like, look, we have a record, you know. Um, so what I did was I personalized several copies. The Bechtor Mann staffers that I knew all got copies. I knew Brendan. Um, I'd known Brendan since the mask started up. And Brendan Mullen, so he got a copy. And then I made copies. I made a copy for Greg Shaw and a copy for Kim Fowley, because those were the two that I was most interested in, you know just for obvious reasons, because Shaw was just starting to, you know, get the Bomp Records thing going. So it looked like it could be a really happening thing. And, of course, Fally had a proven track record for better and worse, you know. But, uh, yeah, those were the two. So I got, I, I, I somehow got all these records to, you know, the addresses or, you know, whatever of the, of the intended recipients, and um, see, with Brendan, it's like I was trying to get the last to play the mask, and he kept, he was just overwhelmed because people in bands just started like flourishing. The LA punk scene went from like maybe there's like, you know, 10 punk rock bands in July of 77, and by October, there's like uh, 300. 
it was just amazing. Um, so, so he was overwhelmed, and I was too nice to 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 be an asshole about it and to really push it. So anyway, it was. Uh, I'm funnily enough, I'm at the mask, and it's the end of the night. Um, um, at the very end of 1977, and I'll never forget the look on my brother David's face. There's like, you know, his eyes like bugged out. Coming towards me were Brendan Mullen, Fast Freddie, and Greg Shaw. All three of them were walking toward me at the same time. And they, they basically all say, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, they're all like, uh, you know, singing high praises of this out-of-tune a demo thing that <laughs> we had put out. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I, my eyes are, like, totally bugged out. Um, uh, so I was told. But it, in the space of, like, 60 seconds, we had a gig at the mask for the next month. Uh, we had a record deal with Bomp, and Fast Freddy was going to do an article on us. <laughs> everything, every everything I'd, I'd, I'd wanted, you know. It's, it's like I'd been trying so hard to get something going. So that was just like a dream come true. I, as I found out, there was a little more work involved. <laughs> Lord. Those first two singles, uh, She Don't Know Why I'm Here and Every Summer Day, they were rough, raw, edgy, and there was that definite uh, 60s garage rock, psych, punk vibe on them. Did those two singles reflect the band's live sound at the time? Hard to say. I Certainly certainly nobody could duplicate all that echo live. I think there are laws against that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the lineup was already changing. We did our first show. Dave Harbison was still in the band, and we had Jack Reynolds already. And Vetus, I'd finally convinced Vetus in the summer of 77 to actually join. He'd sort of been sitting in and stuff. And I said, come on, you want to be in the band. And Mike was still in it. So, you know, we had our lineup, and um, we played that mask show uh, with... Uh, the Avengers and the Dills, and F Word, and um, and immediately after the show, uh, Dave Harbison quit, which I kind of knew was coming, but it was still. But anyway, so I had already been teaching my brother David the songs. Actually, I was going to have my brother John. He had, he had bought in a bass, and he had actually started taking um, music lessons right before I did. He started with uh, violin, but then switched to guitar as well. So. You know, I thought, yes. Yeah. So I said, John, you're going to join the band. Um, I might, I, I think I'm going to need a new bass player. And you know, you know, recruiting musicians was very hard back then. So I kind of like, you got to go to family. And um, so I was going to do that. And then again, this is the end of the year, right? And John gave David, gave brother David, his bass for Christmas, which was a fairly clear sign. <laughs> okay, David, you're it. Now David had just turned 15. One month before. So he's like, he's like not 15. He's like just 15. Um, so now we were going to start playing shows and we were going to have to do a lot of convincing to let, to get my mom to let David go out to all these clubs. Fortunately, she went with it. <sighs> <laughs> 
going through a thing. It's like between like, um, I think August of 76 through like spring of 77, I was just for fun doing, you know, doing a lot of like really obvious 60s pastiches, not necessarily as for public consumption, but just for fun. You know, I wanted to try to write a surf song. I wanted to try to write this style, that style, that, you know. And so I was just playing around. A lot of the songs in L, most of the songs in L.A. Explosion probably came out of that. The problem is, is that they were presumably my best songs from the period. So a lot of the, the 60s damage on L.A. Explosion was not necessarily intentional, but you got you got to go with whatever melodies are, are the best, because I mean, well, for me, it's like melody is everything. You began recording the album with producer John Harrison. How did you end up working with him? John Harrison, interestingly enough, he was he was the original bass player for Hawkwind. The Pete Frame family tree thing shows John Harrison on that first album. Then there's an arrow leading nowhere. Big mystery, yeah. So yeah, he, he ended up moving to L.A. and working at Village Recorders. Basically, um, Randall, our manager, Randall Wixon, uh, knew John. And John was working at a place called Village Recorders, which was like an amazing studio. Basically, John Harrison was an engineer who wanted to break into producing. And uh, Randall said, well, look, I've got this band, you know, and um, you can produce their album. You'll get your production credit in exchange for, you know, what whatever nominal fee we had to pay them. Um, and, of course, the deal was it had to be after hours, you know, when nobody else would be using the studios. So we would be on call, you know, up oh, the studio's going to be free. We can use it. Boom. So we could go in. So typically we would start recording at 10 or 11 at night. We'd get a call about that time. We'd get in, we'd work, we'd record all night, drive home as the sun was rising, drop Mike and Dave off, and go off to work. Well, when you're young, you could do that stuff. I think I'd rather cut my tongue out than try that now, but, you know. That was a long time ago. recording the album was it a stressful time or were you feeling pretty confident uh, at the way things were going yes <laughs> i couldn't resist that was a yes to both uh well it's really i mean it was totally my baby i wrote out charts for all the keyboard parts and even for the bass notes and the flute parts too you know every every bit of music was either written out on paper by me or you know made up by me on the spot depending and uh, most of the backing vocals are me uh, some of the keyboards are me the biggest feeling was just trying to get you know get what I heard down I, I don't think there's any you can really hear the bass on the record which is sort of a drag but uh, John Harrison hated distortion we went in at one point we used MediR to do um some sessions and um so one session we were good was going to be our sort of uh, uh punk rock session we had 
uh, Vetus had found an appropriately uh, an app that could get some really good distortion. So we were going to do like some of the, because I wanted to have, you know, really distorted guitars and like Walk Like Me. Well, obviously, I got to want to be in love and stuff. And so we spent like a good two-hour session, uh, John Harrison and I arguing, just arguing. He was saying no. He was just adamant. I said, no, no. And it was like things were then that people would take him away, take me away. And, and I would be talking uh, earnestly to others and then go back and have at it again. It's just like, he didn't want distortion on the album. I think this is, you have to, those songs were written. And it just wasn't happening at all. You know, no, no, no compromise possible, you know? And I mean, and actually truthfully, if we had like, okay, an itty bitty bit of distortion, we'd both be unhappy. That was crazy. But at the end of the, at the end of the night, I, I either acquiesce and we make the album totally clean or we don't have an album, right? Because this guy is, is our only means of being able to um, do the studio time. So I had to acquiesce, and um, that was disappointing. But, you know, again, it's like the album's the thing. Got to get it done no matter what. So it was just um, a more severe but uh, version than most, but, but just one of the many roadblocks that were popping up. What's a fool like you singing songs in today? You're over the hill, you got nothing to say. Got no guts, ain't got no head. If you had eyes, you'd sing out LA Explosion was released in August of 79. In many ways, I think the album's timelessness is because the album didn't cater to a particular scene or sound. Are your opinions on the sound of the album different now, all these years later? Really, if you're talking about something that's your own creation, uh, I would imagine one changes his mind on it, you know, once a week. There's things I'm proud of and things I feel bad about. I mean, and yeah, you might be right about that. I mean, the idea wasn't, obviously, this kind of feeling with distortion would have been a little silly. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, I, I mean, specifically, I think we were talking about uh, slave driver, I don't want to be in love and um, walk like me. And maybe so, maybe that, you know, I, I don't know how it would have sounded that if we'd been able to do anything differently, how would that have affected it? That's, that's um, as about as unanswerable as a uh, question can be. <laughs> and ultimately it's like you do what you can and it could have been better. It could have been worse. It just is what it is. Greg Shaw didn't like it when he heard it. And um, fortunately, about a week later, he listened to it on headphones and turned it way up. And that made all the difference, you know, because there's a lot of stuff that comes through, you know, if you like, if you, you know, if you listen for it, you know, if it's loud enough on headphones and you're in a properly receptive uh, mood, there's a lot of little things, little subtleties going on throughout the record and i love that stuff i love that stuff that was fun for me that was you know why why i wanted to make records in the first place
I think the harmonies is a huge part of this record, and it's a great vocal blend. Was that something that you created in the live setting, or was that something you took advantage of the studio for? Yes. <laughs> yeah, good. I love these. <laughs> it's the unnecessary dichotomy. <laughs> um, well, certainly in uh, sort of live practice setting and at, at home with acoustic, I worked on a lot of the, because the principal harmonies are, are Mike and I, you know, the happy accident that, that only works when you're actually sharing DNA, you know, so we did a lot of the harmonies that way. And I um, had on a couple of occasions been able to borrow Vetus's four track for a length of time. So I was able to experiment with harmonies, you know, just me, you know, I was able to try, try out different things and see how they worked, et cetera. Um, so I've done a lot of practicing, but um, of course, ultimately when you get in the studio, it's like, it's like you just, in spite of having decided on everything in advance, uh, you end up making a lot of the stuff up as you go along. Every Summer Day almost featured backing vocals by Dean Torrance and Brian Wilson. What is the story behind Rodney that? Rodney was putting that together because, you know, Randall knew Rodney and Rodney uh, had played him an early you know, work in progress version of every summer day. And Rodney got excited. Said, oh my God, I can get, you know, Brian and Dean are, are doing something together right now. I can get them. I can get the, you know, I can, I can get you Brian and Dean for, um, for backing vocals. It looked at for a while. It was just a matter of finding the right date. And then what happened was, uh, we were limited. We only had like X amount of open spots, like to where we were able to record and uh, Brian and Dean were on the road touring. And so it was a, entirely a, uh, you know, logistical impossibility. That's the only reason. your brothers take lead on a few songs on LA Explosion. Were they written for them in mind, or you just felt their voices fit those songs? Um, Mike had written the lyrics to the rack. I wrote the music. But since Mike had written the lyrics, it was always, you know, the idea that he would be the lead singer on that. Uh, Century City Rag, I wanted to give Mike another song, you know, sing lead to. So I thought, okay, yeah, just, you know, we'll give him that one. Uh, he can do it, and um, well, yeah. And I want, so I thought, yeah, we'll give David one too. He can do. I don't want to be in love. And I'm surprised that, that that John Harrison let us use that, you know, because it's so like you know, anarchic, so punk rock. But yeah, yeah, no, I remember um, Claude Bessie, Kickboy Face from Slash, was walking across the Starwood and um, saw David singing "I Don't Want to Be in Love" and said, "No, you know, now that's good." Claude did not like the last. But he liked David singing, I don't want to be in love. That's the only thing he ever liked about it. Are 
Are there any official recorded songs from the L.A. Explosion Sessions that remain unreleased? No, we wanted to do more. Um, the idea was maybe L.A. Explosion, the song, would be on the album, you know? Then we realized we weren't going to have time to do the backing track properly. Looking back, how do you feel about L.A. Explosion today, 40 years on? I'm happy. I'm I'm delighted that people still like it. You know, it's like it's still basically I've got one single and one album for most people, and that's Shira Y and then L.A. Explosion. And so it's like you can kind of spend your life saying, no, no, listen to this. We're going to play something from our new album. Where'd everybody go? And um, it probably makes sense if people want to pay money to see you. It might not be a bad thing to play what they want to hear. Your relationship with Bomp Records continued, and you recorded your second album entitled Look Again. However, it was supposed to be released in 1980, and now, 40 years later, and it still remains unreleased. Why was the album shelved, and is it frustrating to have all that hard work put in somebody's vault? It's beyond frustrating. We were apparently having troubles with bomb it's um the good the good good and frustrating thing about having um management represent you is that you don't really know what's going on people are making decisions and you're not but i knew that we were having difficulties with bomb which only got worse and worse although i'm happy to say that greg and i were the best of friends at the end and actually um we were in talks, we were well because I got bumped to put out the LA Explosion CD with all the extra tracks, and um, I was trading um, emails like 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 nightly, multiple emails nightly, with Greg Shaw because we were talking about the best way to proceed with uh, releasing Look Again. And then one night, my um, email program completely crashed. Everything died. And I found out later that that's the night Greg Shaw died. Yeah, evidently it was Greg saying bye. But yeah, he went and took the hopes of uh, releasing Look Again with him. In 1982, Bomp released the Fade to Black EP, which had three songs from Look Again, plus a song written for the film Fade to Black, which was never used in the film. What was that period like for the band? Because L.A. had already sort of gone from punk to new wave. Well... It was kind of doing both. There was, I mean, this is, these are kind of golden years for punk too, but that's more underground. But I mean, yeah, in a sense, I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Jeepers, I would say that the early to mid 80s were a period of, of intense confusion. You know, we're in a war with Bomp, which is too bad. The record, no one wants it. The record ends up never being released. And so what we do is we decided to go ahead and give Bomp four songs from the sessions, which included the three from Look Again plus the Fade to Black song, um, as kind of they they get those songs, they could put out an EP and we are released from our contract. 
because it's so much more fun to go through the rest of the decade without a contract. I was going to say, what happened was Randall um, had gotten a hold of the script for Fade to Black. Somehow he convinced the the guy that was writing it and going to direct it that, you know, that we could give him a great theme song, you know. So um, what happened was I took uh, an existing Vidu song <laughs> and changed the words. So the, the music, the music is, mo- I think I wrote a little bit of music just to bridge the segments, but the music is, is, is like 80% Vidu's. 90% maybe. The words are all mine. Oh, no. Vitas had about 10% of the words. Anyway, um, but we came up with what I thought was kind of a cool song. The, the song, it was felt, was, gave too much of the plot away. So they, they ended up going in a different direction. To celebrate LA Explosion's 40th anniversary, The Last is going to perform it in its entirety live. Now, who is in the lineup today? The only other... A member from the band that uh, that performed on LA Explosion, who was still in the band, was my brother Mike. So Michael, you know, possibly for the last time, is going to be performing with us, um, which is good because his voice is all over the place on that album. So he should be there. And then we've got on bass uh, my wife, Lisa Torres. She's recently actually got to sit in with the Violent Femmes down in San Diego, which is kind of cool. Then we've got uh, Paul Rucker, who uh, used to be a Drag the River and other bands. He combines the finesse of some drummers with the uh, I'm going to kill everybody, you know, sort of power that Jack Reynolds had. It's really, it's, it's, it's like, it's the, the happy combination that I'm always trying to find. He's really good. When he started playing with us, I was, I noticed him watching me in weird ways. So I thought, you know, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how your songwriting works. I'm trying to figure out like, where are you big changes? You know, which is, I've, I've never heard anything remotely like that, you know, anything remotely analytical, you know, come out of a drummer's mouth before. So I was just like, wow. Then we've got uh, Philo Van Dyne, who um, has played with a lot of bands. He's with uh, Lawndale right now. And so it turned out after I had my first stroke, because I've had a couple, um, I may may actually be sitting for this show. This would be a first. But it's like if I stand, I could be spending most of my energy and thought process like, you know, concentrating on keeping the instrument from falling and, and keeping myself from falling. Whereas if I sit, I could actually make some music. <laughs> so I've kind of avoided it, but I am old and frail. Um, the two strokes kind of um, aged me beyond my chronological years. That's so been kind of a drag. On the other hand, the second stroke was supposed to kill me, and it didn't, so ha-ha. <laughs> you know, I'll take it. And I can still pretend to play guitar, but uh, certainly I recognize that, you know, it would be nice to have a second guitarist. We've got this keyboard player who, well, he's very young. Uh, Well, everybody is compared to me, but he's like very, very young. Um, But he like plays this stuff. He can like, you know, do the, the piano to the organ stuff and he plays this stuff like he grew up with it almost. And he can sing as well. And it's amazing. And um, his name is James Joseph Nolte. 
he is the son of David, and he is going to be singing lead on I Don't Want to Be in Love. <laughs> He's inheriting his dad's song. But anyway, yeah, I couldn't, you know, I, well, I could always be happier, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of happy, you know, we're going to have this delightful little lineup. Um, then Mike will leave us. We'll be back to a five piece and um, the five piece is still going to kick ass. I just don't know what we're doing. I've got some ideas as far as what we're doing next, but um, it's still a little bit of a work in progress. The main thing has been uh, preparing for this show. Cause I really wanted to do a 40th anniversary show and um, I think it's actually going to happen. Don't give it all jazz, mama, rock and roll. Can listeners find out more information on the last and keep updated on your activities? Best thing, well, there's two. There's a historical archival page that my brother Dan does, which is um, laexplosion.com. And then we've got our Facebook page. So you can just like search for the last or search for Joe Nolte and that'll, you know, that should lead you pretty quickly to the last. That will also lead you to a page where you can now buy merch. Obviously, you can't sell records anymore, but <laughs> we can sell merch. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This episode of Beach Blanket Fort Bingo. I'd like to thank my special guest, Joe Nolte, for hanging out and talking about his career and the LA Explosion album. I'd especially like to thank you for listening. So remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe to Beach Blanket Fort Bingo, because I love you. I, I really do. Smell you later.